beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, throughout our lives, we will all look forward to to certain things, Uh, things we like to do, uh, certain events that are coming in the future, big things we have planned, you name it. The school children here might be looking forward to summer holidays. The students in the 12th grade might be looking forward to graduation. Perhaps people who are working at a career are looking forward to retirement. And with all these things, the waiting can take so long. When you are in the third grade, high school graduation seems like an eternity away. When you begin your career, retirement isn't even really in your mind. It's so far off. But still, slowly but surely, the time passes, and then the moment arrives for the thing that you waited for. Graduation comes for the student in 12th grade, or retirement finally comes for the person who's worked so long in a career. Finally, it's here. It's a reality. And the same principle applies to eternal life. Right now, we are waiting. It can seem so far off into the future, especially if you're young. Eternal life, resurrection of the dead, it seems like forever away. But slowly and surely, the time is passing. Day turns into night, night turns into day. And then one day, Christ will return. The resurrection will take place, and eternal life will begin. That, that day will one day be here. We will be there. The only question now is, do you think about that? And do you look forward to that time? And you know what? You should. You should look forward to eternal life more than you look forward to anything else. Perhaps you do that. Perhaps you look forward greatly. But perhaps you don't. Maybe you're so caught up with day-to-day things that you forget about these great things that are coming. And eternity and the life everlasting fades away from view. That's why it's good for us to focus on these things once again this afternoon from God's Word. God has created a glorious future for us. It's one that is worth looking forward to and counting down the days for until it finally arrives. So that brings us to the sermon theme, which this afternoon is this. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We're going to look at, first of all, the reality of this future, secondly, the beauty of this future, and finally, the impact on the present. So, first of all, the reality of this future. So, part of our confession is of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And this brings us to the, the last few articles of the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of the gospel. The resurrection of the body refers to the resurrection on the last day. When the time has been fulfilled, the sky will be rolled back like a scroll, the trumpet will sound, Jesus Christ will return, 
and the dead in Christ will be brought back to life. And at that time, the souls of believers who died before the Lord's return will re-enter their bodies, and they shall live once more. And Christians who are alive at Christ's return will be changed in an instant. And Lord's Day 22 summarizes Scripture when it says, We shall be made like Christ's glorious body. Now, what does that all involve? What is Christ's resurrected, glorified body like? Well, we know some, some things from Scripture. In some ways, it's the very same as it was before Jesus arose from the dead. His resurrected body was a real physical body, not some kind of illusion or some kind of spirit. After his resurrection, he said to his disciples in Luke 24, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So the glorified Lord Jesus has a real physical body, flesh and bones. And the same Jesus who died on the cross is now living once more. So in many ways, his glorified body is the same. In other ways, however, Christ's resurrected body is also different than it was before he arose. Before he arose, Jesus Christ could suffer in his body. And he suffered a lot. His life before his resurrection was characterized by suffering because his life was one of atonement for sins, for us. But after his resurrection, after the curse had been paid for, Christ can never suffer again in his flesh. And similarly, the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord, now can never die again. Rising from the dead meant arising into never-ending life, conquering death forever. Romans 6 puts it like this, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And this is how our glorified bodies will be in the resurrection of the dead. They will be the same as a glorified Christ. In some ways, our bodies will be the same as they are now. You will still be you. You will not be some completely different person. We are physical creatures now. We will be in the resurrection also. And the body you receive in eternal life is not of another person, but it will be the body you have now. But it will be glorified and made perfect. So in some ways, it will be the same. In many ways, however, our resurrected bodies will be different. Our bodies will become imperishable and immortal. And like Christ, we will never suffer again. They will never break down, get sick, or suffer pain, and we will never die. 
And the best part of it all is that we will be forever freed from sin. You will still be you, but without any sin whatsoever or any desire to sin whatsoever. And that makes for the best life possible. So that is the what of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But then there's also the where. And in this regard, we should clear up one common misconception about eternal life. Eternal life is not about dying and going to heaven. Right? Dying and going to heaven is not the ultimate goal. Certainly, that is wonderful. Lord's Day 22 says that immediately after the soul, my life shall immediately be taken up to Christ my head. And the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, that is better by far. That being said, our glorious future lies not in becoming disembodied souls floating around like some kind of ethereal cloud. Our glorious future lies ultimately in a recreated world on the new heavens and the new earth. In eternal life, heaven and earth will be made perfect and they will will be made one. And we will be in the presence of our triune God on a recreated earth. Heaven and earth will be one. So this is the future that awaits us in the coming resurrection and life everlasting. But of course, it's one thing to know what these things are. It's another thing to know and believe that they are a certain and coming reality. Sometimes these things, they might feel a little bit surreal, almost dreamlike. But these things, beloved, are our certain future. One day we will be there. The resurrection of the dead will take place. And we will be on the new heavens and the new earth with glorified bodies in the presence of God. We will be there. You can see how this sure hope was expressed by Job in Job 19. Job, of course, suffered greatly in life. Everything in life was taken from him. He felt like God had abandoned him, was breaking him into pieces. And he called out continually, but received no answer. And yet there there comes this beautiful moment in Job 19 where Job still can express his hope in the Lord. It's as if the clouds of darkness and depression lift even for just one minute. And Job can look forward in faith. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. You can see how Job's faith was personal 
And it was sure, I shall see God. Now, what did Job mean by his Redeemer lives? Perhaps it's just his faith expressed that God is the living God and he will renew Job's life, redeem him from his troubles. But it could also be that in this moment, the Holy Spirit reveals something of the coming work of Jesus Christ to him. And these words certainly do apply to our Lord Jesus and his saving work. He is our Redeemer. He has bought us back from eternal death by his blood. And he lives forever. And because the Lord Jesus lives, we too will live forever in him. Job says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet I will see God, my eyes will see him and not another. You can see this was a confession of Job, but we know that these words expressed by him were true. They were unfailingly true. They weren't just wishful thinking. This was Job's unshakable future, his certain future. Beloved, we can have that certainty too because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. It depends on him. What was true for Job is true for us in Jesus Christ. We know that our Redeemer lives and he shall stand upon the earth and he has secured this future for all those who believe in him. So that's the reality of this future, one that we can look forward to. So now we're going to look at the beauty or the glory of this future. That brings us to the second point. To see the beauty of this future, we're going to look first at our reading from 2 Corinthians 12. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul continues a boasting to the Corinthians, a boasting that began in the previous chapter, chapter 11. Now, why is he boasting? We might wonder. Well, he's not trying to make himself look good, but it was because of what the Corinthian church was doing. The Corinthians insisted on comparing Paul to the so-called super-apostles who were leading Uh, who are leading the Corinthians away from loyalty to Paul and his teaching. And so Paul says, fine, go ahead. If you want to play the comparison game, let's play that game. And guess what? I've got those super apostles beat by a mile. He was boasting of all his qualities and credentials in chapter 11, and it continues here in chapter 12. And that's why he says in verse 1, I must go on boasting. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. It's as if Paul is bringing out uh, the big guns in his comparison to the super apostles. And then he describes an experience of being caught up into heaven, into paradise itself. And again, he's not interested in making himself look so great. He just wants to confirm his ministry as an apostle. And that's why he describes this experience in the third person, so as not to draw unneeded attention to himself. He says, I know a man in Christ who is caught up to the third heaven. 
even though this is assuredly Paul's own experience. Listen to how he describes this event that he went through. It says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. He says that he was caught up to the third heaven. And this refers to the very presence of God itself. The the surrounding sky was the first heaven. The realm of the sun, moon, and stars was the second heaven. The third heaven was God's very throne room. And Paul says he was there. He refers to it as paradise. The same place Christ went after his death and the thief on the cross who looked to him in faith also went to paradise. And the experience for Paul was so overwhelming, he says, I heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And this may mean he was not permitted to speak the things that he heard there. It may also mean that what he heard was simply indescribable. Human words fail to give a sense of the things he heard. Perhaps there is a sense of both, not being permitted to speak and not being able to speak. But either way, these words here of Paul's experience in heaven gives you a small picture of the weight of glory that awaits us. Paul went to paradise and returned. And what he heard in paradise was so great, he could not speak of it. And later on in verse 7, he describes this experience as the surpassing greatness of the revelation he received. Literally, he says it was a revelation of extraordinary degree, of such exceptional character. And the experience of being in paradise and seeing and hearing what he did was so great, God had to go to extraordinary lengths to keep Paul humble. He gave Paul a painful thorn in his flesh. Paul calls it a messenger from Satan. Now, we don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was, but we do know it was painful for sure. The Apostle Paul says he was tormented by it. But this was necessary. This was necessary to keep Paul humble given the glory he experienced in paradise. So, beloved, this gives us a small taste of what is coming. It's the weight of glory we will fully experience on the new heavens and the new earth. In this life, we will never be able to fully grasp what's in store for us in eternity. But it does mean we can look forward and should look forward to it with all eagerness. And the beauty of this coming glory is also seen when it's contrasted with our present circumstances. This life is so often one of pain and trouble. Think again of what Paul says. He was given a painful thorn in his flesh, 
messenger of Satan was tormenting him. Again, we don't know exactly what this thorn was, but I think, I think that's a good thing. If we knew exactly what it was, we might not be able to relate to Paul's suffering. But by keeping its exact nature hidden, we can now take comfort also in our own pain. God often gives His people a thorn in their flesh. It can be tormenting, as it tormented Paul. But what do we know of Paul now? He's far past this. He's all done with the suffering and hardships. This thorn has been removed forever. And he is experiencing the glory of paradise that he once got a taste of. And not just for a moment, but he's experiencing it forever. And that will be us one day too. We who believe in Jesus Christ. Similar things can be said about Job. And what a contrast between his life of suffering and what he has now. Look at the things that Job speaks about in Job 19 alone. His friends were tormenting him with their words. He found his prayers were completely unanswered by God. It seemed to Job that God had set darkness upon his paths. He had stripped him of his glory, broken him down completely, removed all his hope, kindled his wrath against him, counted Job as his enemy. This is how Job felt. His family had forsaken him. His own wife abhorred him. All his friends had turned away. His body became ravaged by sickness and weakness. And yet, what does Job have now? Well, he is with the Lord in heaven. He's comforted in God's own presence. He's left all that suffering behind forever. The glory and beauty he experiences now is far greater than, than his sufferings, but also the best times that he had while he was on the earth. And for Job and for Paul, the best is still to come when his body will be raised again on the last day. So that's a contrast we can look forward to also. In one sense, eternal life is characterized by the phrase, no more. That is, no more pain, no more trouble, no more strife, and so on and so on. So eternal life is one characterized by the phrase, no more. But in another sense, eternal life is characterized by the phrase, how much more? What do I mean by that? Well, if in this life of suffering and sin, the beauty of creation can take our breath away, how much more will that be the case in eternal life, where everything's perfect? If in this life there's joy and happiness in the presence of people you love, how much more will it be the case in eternal life? See, eternal life is also one of how much more. How much better, how much more beauty, how much more joy is coming? And to finish describing the beauty and glory of eternal life, we will focus on one last thing. In Job 19, 
Job speaks of his future hope in terms of seeing his Redeemer, seeing his God. He says, in my flesh I shall see God. And beloved, this is the most wonderful thing of all, and I want us to understand this. This is the most wonderful thing to look forward to about eternal life. You know, as you study Scripture, you can see that all throughout Scripture, we hear these statements about humans not being able to and not being permitted to see God. Take, for example, Exodus 33, where God says to Moses, No man shall see my face and live. Yet here in Job 19, Job confesses that in eternal life, in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. And this is not just something that Job could confess, it's something we can confess too. And why can I say that? It's because of the words of 1 John 3, verse 2. There we read, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And I hope you get goosebumps when you hear those words. Because this is the best thing of all. Trust me. I can't tell you exactly what it will be like. It's probably indescribable. But I can tell you that it will be awesome and far greater than anything you've ever experienced before or greater than anything you can imagine. That brings us to our last point. Now, most of what I've said so far has been about what lies ahead in the future. The things of eternal life. And yet these things also need to impact our lives in the present. We still have lives to live in the here and now. How, do the, how does this hope and how does this future affect us as we live today? Well, we can apply these precious truths in various ways. And the first application comes to us right out of 1 John 3. There it says, as God's children, we have the hope of seeing God. It says, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. But then it adds in 1 John 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So this hope of eternal life, of seeing God, spurs us on to get rid of sin and to cleanse our lives from all impurity of sin. This hope strengthens us to live for God now and to walk in His ways more and more. That's the first application of these beautiful truths. Our hope of eternal life is a purifying hope. The more this hope grows within us, the more we will work to put sin to death. So that's the first thing. Next, the hope of eternal life also also allows us to patiently endure the suffering of this life. 
As Romans 8 says, At the present time we groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, we groan inwardly, the redemption, the, our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So in the present time we groan as we suffer, and yet we have hope and we wait for it with patience. And the hope of eternal life allowed Paul to endure his sufferings with patience. Yes, he was tormented by this thorn in his flesh, this messenger of Satan. But through his weakness, God's power rested on him. and He could continue on in the faith. And so he boasted in his weakness because it might because it magnified the sustaining power of Christ in him. And so he writes, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, patience in the here and now. Now, it is true that Job, at times, grew impatient with the Lord. As you read through the book of Job, you can see, yeah, he grew impatient with God. He felt he deserved answers for his, uh, to his questions. However, after hearing God speak at the end of this book, Job too learned to endure his suffering with patience. He says he repented in dust and ashes for growing angry at the Lord. And the road to eternal life is often paved with instances where we learn this same lesson too. We learn to trust God and endure our suffering with humility and with patience. So that's the second thing. Another way we can apply these truths to our day-to-day lives is in seeing how eternal life makes this life more important. Now, you might think it's the opposite. You might think eternal life makes this life nearly insignificant. In some ways, we can say that, I mean, eternal life is far larger, and of course, and greater than our lives here and now. However, in some sense, in, in a real sense, eternal life makes this life far more important. After all, those without the hope of eternal life have the attitude, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But eternal life heightens the importance of this life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean this in a worldly sense at all as if we needed to hold on to the things of this life at all costs, we don't need to. We have eternal life. That we need to hold on to our lives in the here and now, we don't need to. We have eternal life. But Scripture makes clear that what we do in this life will affect how our lives will look in eternity. And isn't that an amazing thing to think about? How we live our lives in the here and now will affect what our lives look like in eternity. Just think of the parable of the talents. The servant who was given five talents and made five more was then entrusted with even more when his master assessed his work. He proved faithful with little, so he was entrusted with so much more. 
It's the same for eternal life. What we do in this life affects our own unique experience of eternal life. So, beloved, see that this life matters. And so let's use it for the glory of our Master and our Father in heaven. Let's use all our talents to His glory for the building up of His kingdom. Certainly, beloved, it matters. So that's the third thing. Final line of application. We could make more. The final one for these truths this afternoon is as follows. Given that this is the beautiful, glorious future of believers, we should take great care for each other. That everyone would reach the goal of eternal life. Let's work for the good of others in the church and also seeking to save the lost in our communities. God has been so good to us as believers in giving us this sure hope of eternal life. And we want everyone in the church, everyone in the covenant people of God, and everyone also in our neighborhood to know this same grace of God. So I encourage you to show great care for the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters here in this church. Help each other, beloved. Talk with each other about your faith. Pray for one another. Encourage each other as we journey on the way together as the, the people of God. Also call those straying away from the Lord. to Come back. Take great care of the other members of the body of Christ. Doing this will help us all to reach the goal of eternal life. And when we are there, then we will be in perfect joy forever. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing hymn 72. We're going to sing all the stanzas, and this is also a a hymn based on one of the passages I quoted in the sermon from 1 John 3. So first, uh, we're going to sing hymn 72.